Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your word proclaimed. We thank you for your promises that you have given us as your word is proclaimed, and I pray that you would keep those promises, Lord, and help us to trust in them, Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, it, it breathes life into your people. It calls us to repentance and to hope. It establishes your word more firmly within our hearts, Lord. It fixes our eyes on Christ, and it shapes us into his image. Lord, I pray that you would do that right now. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We'll be flying through a number of scriptures, but that's our main passage, our main theme. So the question of how to honor someone, how to show them dignity, how to treat them with respect, who to honor, how to honor them, and in relation to identity, this is a live question right now in our world. And we seem a little discombobulated about that. But when we read scripture, this has always been the question. This has always been at the heart of what holiness is. What does honor and dignity look like? What does it mean and look to, to live as a human with the dignity that God has assigned us? And today we're going to look at how this beautiful gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he became a man, not only God, but also then an image bearer of God to satisfy the law's demands on us, our creator's expectations on us, then to die in our place, to die for our sins and to suffer for the ways in which we have sinned against God and his good commands and design and expectations against us, to rise from the dead, to conquer death, which was the curse of for our sins, and then also to remake us into the image of Christ, to be of sin the double cure, as we sang, to be saved from wrath, but also then to sin no more. So today what we're going to look at is these questions in relation to the questions of life and death in our culture. Life and death dignity, humanity, image of God. And the goal is that we'd be able to better reflect the glory of God and also to adorn the gospel, to put the jewelry on the gospel in that sense, to live a life that is, is, is in keeping with the calling that God has given us with the gospel. And that the church would be beautified with glorious truths, shining light that her husband, the Lord Jesus, finds to be beautiful no matter how beautiful or ugly the world thinks those truths are. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. We're going to read the first 17 verses. Genesis 9, 1 to 17. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. 
From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark as it is for every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations, I have set my bow in the cloud. It shall be a sign of the covenant which, between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the, ba- the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again be flood, uh, become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So our first point is that since the image of God was not lost in the fall into sin, since the image of God was not lost in the fall into sin, the ending of human life is a sin against the God whose image they bear. The ending of human life is a sin against the God whose image they bear. So this event follows directly after the flood, which God brought on the world to destroy humanity, to wipe them out for their sin. But in his mercy, he spared six people in order to keep his promises, to bring a redeemer, to restore his beloved creation, rather than merely start over. And Noah's the man whom the Lord chose to show his mercy to, and all who were in his ark and in his family, they were all spared, though they were also sinful. Though humanity had become thoroughly sinful, I I want you to notice that the image of God remained, right? This command comes well after the fall into sin, well after the fall into sin had become full bloom, and you have a, a society, a world that was entirely corrupted by sin. And yet... The image of God remained. It was defaced, as we've said, but not erased. God's plan was still that he be glorified by humans, imaging him and ruling creation on his behalf according to his commands. This has remained his plan. There would be a humanity that reigns over the earth and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly. And I want you to notice that the command to not murder was directly connected to the fact that a human is made in God's image. Did you notice that? That's the reason given here. Because by murdering, you are removing without authorization one of God's images of himself in the world. You're taking down one of his billboards designed for his glory and to reign on his behalf on the earth, to know and enjoy him. It is as if you are killing a foreign king's ambassador. That would make him angry. Do not take a human's life because that human is made in God's image. 
I want you to see that this is seen as drastically different than an animal's life. Animals here are given for food. Did you notice that? God says, I give you all the things that walk on the earth. I give you these animals for food. So they're given for the flourishing of human life. Meat to sustain and enjoy life. Life outside the garden became very hard, as we've seen. This was part of the curse. You're going to wrestle with the ground. You're going to wrestle with creation. It's going to fight against you in order to sustain life. And God says, I'm actually giving you the life of animals to actually have joy and life and flourishing celebration to sustain you in the world that is cursed by sin. Animals are given to you for that. But the taking... Uh, but the taking of animal life to push back against that is actually a gift to push back against weariness and fatigue. Human life isn't just merely more valuable than animal life. It certainly is. It's not just a, a difference of amount. You know, animals are this valuable and, and then humans are this valuable. It's, it's actually different in kind. They're not even comparable. An animal... Notice that an animal without sin just takes a human life. That animal is to be killed. Why? So Noah would always be reminded of the value of human life. Whether an animal is more or less helpful than that kid it killed, more or less beautiful, more or less beneficial for the farm or for the, the, the community, it doesn't matter. The child that it killed is of infinite greater value. Now, their value is not in themselves, right? Because they are bestowed with this image and dignity by God. It's not that we are valuable enough to God. No, it's because he has by grace bestowed us with that dignity. Takes us to our second point. The taking of human life in service of guarding the value of human life is permitted. Okay? The taking of human life in the service of guarding the value of human life is permitted. So, outside the garden. When we say we're outside the garden, we're talking about outside the Garden of Eden. We're no longer in paradise. We're in a fallen world, a world with sin and corruption and evil and wickedness and murder. In a world that's stained by the curse of sin, the taking of human life always means that there's sin present. Every time somebody's, uh, a human life is taken, guaranteed there's always sin present. But it's not always sinful to do that. Sometimes the most godly thing to do, the way to best guard the dignity of human life, is by taking human life. I wonder if you notice that capital punishment to Noah is commanded. The execution of a murderer and it is because of the value of human life. It's actually not to diminish the value of human life, but to keep it elevated. We're not permitted to pretend that we still live in the Garden of Eden. We can't pretend that we do. We're absolute fools to pretend that. There's sin and wickedness and violence and murder. And being made in God's image now, it sometimes means using force to protect and avenge the lives of innocent people. So included here, obviously, is capital punishment for murder, armed forces and police officers to guard and protect human life, sometimes horribly but justly taking human life in order 
to ensure that the society does not become a place where human life is disregarded. This is not disrespecting the value of human life. As we see in in God's commands to Noah, it is actually honoring it. Now, if we go further in Scripture, in Exodus chapter 22, we're going to find similar commands. But what is very instructive is that Israel is actually forbidden from taking a man's life to stop theft or to punish theft. Even the life of a thief is more valuable than the possessions that he was trying to steal or did steal. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. The presence of sin and violence has provided, it actually, it insisted that humanity now, as we image God, we actually imitate him sometimes by executing justice and violence. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he will one day come to judge the living and the dead, to execute judgment, and he will bear the sword. Now, it is certainly true that many men with authority have sinned grievously while bearing the sword or guns or handcuffs and have dishonored the God in whose image they were made. But it is also certainly true that the just and holy justice of God has been terribly and wonderfully demonstrated by men of authority who have confronted killers, who have confronted invading armies, who have stopped murderers by killing the criminal, who have freed concentration camps, and who have rescued wives being beaten by their husbands. This is a command to use strong force to guard human life in both the Old and the New Testaments. We see in Romans 13, we're told that the emperor or the civil government is a minister of God's justice and that he does not bear the sword in vain. Personal vengeance is not permitted. It is wickedness in Scripture, very clearly. But justice coming from the proper authority is godly, and a proper, though somber, way to bear the image of God and to guard the value of the image of God. We are imitating Christ as a society when we do that well. We cannot pretend we live in the Garden of Eden anymore. We do not. It would be sinful for us to do that. Brings us to our third point. It is wicked to be reckless with human life. It is wicked to be reckless with human life. It's not merely sinful to intentionally kill an innocent human. It's also sinful to be reckless with human life. In Exodus, we find instructions to Israel. In Exodus chapter 21, actually you can turn there. Exodus chapter 21, we find instructions to Israel. They're civil laws. And remember that the people of God, it was a nation at that time, and they needed civil laws. Okay? Exodus 21, we're going to look at verse 28 to 32. When an ox gores a man or woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall 
he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. And if it gores a man's son or a daughter, he shall be dealt with according to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. And I want you to notice that the offending animal is killed no matter what. Okay? The owner loses the animal and he can't use it for meat. It's not like, oh, I was going to use it for meat anyways. No big deal. It is an actual loss. It's written off, straight off. The value of human life is to be honored, and that's how we honor the God in whose image we're made. I want you also to notice that the owner is considered a killer, not merely if his animal kills a human, but if he had every reason to believe that it was likely. Do you notice that? Of course, every man owning an ox, every woman owning an ox, knows it's possible, knows there is a risk, but life outside the garden is always filled with risks. Risk that you could lose your life, even risk that you might accidentally cause the death of someone else. On your way to church this morning, you took the risk that you might die in a car crash or actually you might have also killed someone else. That risk existed. The question, though, is about elevated risk, abnormal risk. Not merely that it was possible that a person would lose their life, but quite likely. Now, this is very helpful for us as we consider COVID. It really is helpful for us. Because the million-dollar question is not whether COVID ends people's lives, but if it does so at a rate that puts society at an elevated risk of death significantly greater than what would be normal. That's the million-dollar question here. And so, brothers and sisters, we don't have to be fools or heretics to disagree with each other on that question. We don't. But there are two positions that are Ill immediately eliminated based on Scripture. Two positions that Christians are forbidden from taking. One that you have a moral obligation to live in such a way that risk is eliminated, that you are irresponsible merely because your actions might actually cause death. That is forbidden. You can't take that position as a Christian. You can't hold yourself to it, and you can't hold other people to it. The other position that's eliminated by Scripture is to say that just because you didn't intentionally put someone's life at risk, that you aren't being reckless. On the one hand, you have the responsibility to honor the dignity of an image bearer, the owner of an ox, by not condemning him unjustly or forcing him to live in such a way that it eliminates all risk. You can't force an image bearer outside the garden to live in such a way that eliminates all risk. That's unjust. On the other hand, you have the responsibility to honor the dignity of those lives who might be put at risk. So believers who, uh, believers who honor God by honoring those made in his image must affirm both those principles. We must. Even though the news that we watch picks one of those principles or the other and tells us that we can only honor one of those principles. But the Lord of life is our master, and they are not. This calls for wisdom. And may God grant that to us. Next point. 
Now, the next four points are actually really one point in four points. So don't, I know you saw the outline yesterday and you're like, we're going to be here till tomorrow. Uh, and we have two services, so good luck. No, it's actually four points. It's, it's, it's four subpoints within one point. And what we're going to do is we're going to turn to some common and perennial ways that humans have been inclined to evaluate how human uh, another human is in order to get more of our idols. Okay, we're going to, how human is that person? Because, you know, that if I kind of dehumanize them, then I actually get more of my idols. Okay? And so our first point in this subpoint, I guess, is the sick, suffering, and disabled are human. The sick, suffering, and disabled are human. You're going to recall in our first sermon in this series that we noted that there's nothing special about humans that caused God to give us the glory of being called his image bearers. It wasn't dependent on any abilities that we possessed. But you'll also remember that the Lord, in his design for humans, he, he gave us qualities and abilities and capacities to fulfill the mandate to rule creation and to imitate him morally and to know his love the way that children would know the love of a father. He gave us those capacities after he declared we were his image. You're also going to remember that after the fall into sin, the curse of death came on the human race, and the image of God was not erased, it was defaced. And that means that God's declaration of one's identity, it didn't change. But the design is now marred by the curse of sin and death. That means that disabilities may impair a person's ability to fulfill that mandate given by God to rule over creation. To put it in very practical terms, a person may be of less use in gardening creation and protecting and producing and providing for human life. In fact, they may be of no use for those things. And I speak only in human terms. But it still has no bearing on their value as image bearers. Even still, it has not impaired other humans from glorifying God by honoring him by how we honor them. This is a great value which even the most disabled persons possess and the most abled all possess equally. We all provide other image bearers with the ability to glorify God by treating humans as image bearers. And I'm going to challenge someone's treating someone's conclusion that the most disabled person didn't have the, the ability to benefit a family or a church or society. But even if, that, that even if it were true, even if it were true, they would still benefit the family by reminding them of the grace of God in bestowing his image upon humanity. Come from the dust. It's also very much likely that they'll provide much more than that. Laughter and grace and companionship. But even if they didn't, they still beautify and adorn a family, a church, and a nation with glorious opportunities to demonstrate the gracious love of the Lord toward us, who have nothing that the Lord did not first give to us. This is why ending a life merely because it is deemed less than human is wicked. Abortion, as we're going to actually take some time on its own to look at, is murder. 
but to abort babies because they, have sh they are shown to be disabled or less than human is a double wickedness. Euthanasia or assisted suicide or suicide itself, that's all murder. Because at the core of what's happening is there's an evaluation that a sick life or a suffering life or a disabled life is not a worthy life. This life doesn't image God well enough. That is a wickedness of the highest degree. You remember at the end of King Saul's life, you remember from our sermons on 1 Samuel that he's wounded in battle, and we have an account of two men at the end of his life. One is his armor bearer, and he begs his armor bearer, please end my life, they're going to mistreat me. And his armor bearer refuses for fear, presumably fear of the Lord. So Saul takes his own life. There's another man as well, the man who brings the news to David. And this man thinks he's going uh, to be lauded as a hero because he says, look, I, I met Saul and Saul was dying. I, I realized that he was in agony and he wasn't going to be able to live afterward. And so I mercifully put him out of his misery. That man is killed by David. Likewise, Job's suffering was considered so great that his wife suggested he just take the option of death to escape it. Job's response in Job 2, verse 9 to 10, it summarizes Job's position that he knew he was made in the image of God and that it was God's choice for, God, for Job to image him through delight or to image him through sorrow. In either case, there was value in Job's life as an image bearer. Job chapter 2, 9 to 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. The apostle Paul too, jailed, and suffering for the gospel of the Lord Jesus, he actually considered death to be a good option. For then he would be with the Lord and, and away from suffering. But as long as the Lord decided it would glorify Christ more for Paul to remain on the earth, he was prepared to do that and with joy, even in the middle of suffering. He would let the author of life decide that knowing, knowing a suffering person can glorify and enjoy God as his image bearer, this is the true meaning of Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can glorify him with delight. And I can glorify and image him through suffering. So when a person has decided that for the sake of suffering or any other reason that their life is no longer worth living, We've been told as a society that to treat them with dignity is to agree with them. Oh, but our Savior insists we do not. Treating them with human dignity is to disagree with them on that matter, not to agree. Now, disability is not how God designed someone. It's not. If you were blind... Blind from birth even. Now, that's no accident and it's not out of God's control. But it is not how he has designed you. He has chosen to give you a life with these challenges for now. 
It is how the fall into sin has marred the design of God and, and the miracles of Christ in the Gospels. They are a foreshadowing of the restoration to the design which is yours, which was originally yours, which is marred now and which will one day be restored. But the deaf will hear, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the mute will sing. Those with mental capacity, whose, whose, whose mental capacity is severely limited, will one day think with clear and restored minds, and all the redeemed will use those restored capacities to know and enjoy the Lord who made them in his image, who gave them life and who died for their sins to restore them. And so now we honor God now by treating them according to God's declaration about them and according to his original design for them. Next subpoint in that category, all tribes are human. We're going to be spending a whole sermon to see how the glory of the gospel of Jesus is known through the ingathering of all tribes and tongues and nations. But suffice it to say right now, the Lord Jesus took the image of God, humanity, and in it he died for the sins of a church made of all nations, all ethnos, all People groups, all tribes, Matthew 28, all authority has been given. This means that all nations, all tribes are equally made in the image of God. Or Christ's blood would not have covered their sin. Because it was human blood that he shed. It was the blood of a man, the blood of a human. And so that means he didn't die for the sins of angels. Any angel who has sinned will remain condemned. And he didn't die for the sins of animals because animals don't sin. His death in the place of, his death is in the, the place of Dutch believers and African and Peruvian and Ojibwe and Cree and Brazilian and German and Caribbean and Mexican and Russian and British believers. And that is his demonstration that all nations have sinned against God as image bearers. And that people of all nations will be restored by being redeemed by the redemption of Christ. There are no races, brothers and sisters. There is only one, the human race, Adam's helpless race. And it is for this race that the Lord Jesus suffered and bled and died and rose and reigns and will return for. So no tribe is more or less human. Look at that in greater detail in a couple weeks. Next point. Old people are humans. Now our cur current culture can't decide if they actually believe this or not. Because we hate old age and we think it's something to avoid. Something to deny. And old people are seen of less value. So churches have actually embraced this too. Sometimes quicker than the culture has. No one wants to be known as a church for old people. Even pastors of older age are seen now as a liability. Our culture tends to set the elderly aside where they're not a trouble or they're not a burden to us. Try to avoid that contact with them as much as possible. And that has sadly come to roost in the COVID crisis, hasn't it? That has been exposed quite dramatically. We want to be able to structure our lives in such a way that dishonors the lives of the aged. And we also want to be able to say that we care about their lives. We can't figure it out. Sadly, this crisis 
also comes at a time when legislation is being passed in Canada that will encourage the elderly to choose to end their lives because they're too hard or maybe because they don't feel that they're of much value or maybe the cost, the burden to their family or society is too great to bear. And the Lord Jesus showed that this, showed that this was actually part of his motivation for the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother. That way it was extended to their old age. A conversation that Jesus has in Mark 7 shows that the command of Israel was actually to care for the aged, to honor them as their capacities decreased and diminished. The instruction to honor God by honoring them remained and perhaps even increased. We have to insist that their lives are just as valuable when their minds and memories and mobility slip away, just as valuable as when they were at full strength in their glory days. Paul gives instructions to Timothy and Titus, both pastors. He gives them special responsibilities and dignity and worth in relation to the elderly. So we're not permitted to agree that dignifying an old person means helping them end their life. That is a rejection of the doctrine of the image of God. That is dignity, uh, that what is dignity and undignified, that is decided by God. And it is unchangeably decided by him. We read in Isaiah 46, 3 to 4, text that Carol Forbes picked for her funeral text. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age I am he, to your gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, I will carry and I will save. Next point, sub-point, babies are humans. Now the belief that unborn babies are not humans, made in God's image, is one that is patently undefensible from Scripture. It is wicked from first to last. There's no room for it in Scripture. Job 10, 18 and 19, Jeremiah 20, 17, both conversations with, with, with these, these godly men in relation to God, and they both speak of the ending of a life in the womb as death, even as killing. Exodus 1, you'll remember the story of the Exodus where the midwives were first instructed to kill baby boys before they were born. You remember that their first defense from Pharaoh's wrath was, oh, you know what? The Hebrew uh, women, they gave birth really quick, and so it was too late. After the babies were born, we showed up so we couldn't kill them. So we see that the instruction was actually to kill the baby boys before they were fully born or born. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 5 says this. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. So from here it's clear that God gives actual human life inside the womb because this is clearly a reference back to the creation of Adam in the garden. From the dust, the breathing of the Spirit into him. It's also, from this passage, very clear that it's a mystery as to how God does this. So those trying to determine at what point a child is actually a child, at what point the baby is a baby, he says this is a mystery. And 
It is a wicked and foolish endeavor, which is very similar to debating which disabled person is human or not. How disabled can you be and stop being a human? It's just that wicked. Again, Exodus chapter 21, these similar laws regarding death and injury. God includes the injury, Exodus 21, 22. God in, includes the injury of an unborn child causing its premature death, uh, birth and then death. Two men fighting together and they cause a woman to prematurely give birth and then that baby dies. It is called murder. And what you'll note in this passage is the mother's desire for that child is not even considered. Abortion is as, is as sinful in the Lord's eyes as killing a 20-year-old who is full of life and strength because both are image bearers of God. Full stop. So it is of no surprise that the abortion industry has made every effort to deny the humanity of unborn babies. And it's what they must do to justify murder. But we can't agree with their assessment. For it is God who determines who is a recipient of the dignity of that title of image bearer. And he has declared that it begins in the womb. Psalm 17, 14 says, you fill their womb with treasure. And they are satisfied with children and they leave their abundance to their infants. And here we see in this passage a couple of things. First, that there is a treasure already in the womb of a pregnant woman. That is already a treasure. But also the fact that a children are a treasure. We are his image bearers. And a society that is thinking the way we are has already decided that human life is not automatically valuable. We don't automatically think children would be a blessing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they might be a blessing. We'll ask the parents ahead of time. Perhaps actually children or increased population, perhaps that's actually, a, that's actually a curse or a bad thing. We don't see them as a blessing, only a liability or a burden. But that's because we're thinking of the world as belonging to us and not existing for the glory of God who has created it to be filled with image bearers who reflect his glory and who will know him as, 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 as redeemer. No matter what our culture of death says, dignity does not mean we agree that a person's life is not worth living. One argument that's often used in the abortion industry for is, is it's, it's for the sake of the baby you know, based on quality of life that they're going to have. And so babies who are going to be born poor are considered not worthy of life. We wouldn't want that person to live poor. But that logically means that the life of a poor man is not as valuable as a rich man. Babies which are born are going to be born without fathers, maybe because it's an unwed mother or perhaps through uh, assault, they're considered, maybe, maybe those are, are situations where we could actually end that child's life. But that flies in the face of the commands of the Lord. That values, puts special value on the life of the fatherless and the widows. So you're already denigrating the life of a fatherless child 
It's not as, not as valuable, not as human. Planned Parenthood was first founded in order to eliminate African children because their lives were not seen as valuable, as human, as non-Africans. So no matter what our culture of death says, dignity does not mean that we agree that a person's life is not worth living. But we insist that all people's lives are honored in such a way that glorifies the God in whose image they were made. We don't choose their identity. Their moms don't choose their identities. Their dads don't choose their identities to call them babies or fetuses. Babies don't even get to choose their own identities. This is what we're learning through this series. Your identity is given by the Lord God, maker of heaven and earth. That means he will judge them as image bearers, for they bear his, the dignity of image bearers, and he also demands that we honor their lives based not on the value that we think they have, or even that they think they have, but what God, their creator, has declared about them and based on how worthy God is of dignifying them. That does bring us to our last actual point. Christ redeems the heart to love the Lord and to love our neighbor. No one in this room or in the live stream or in the next service will be able to escape this dive into the good law and design of God, not able to escape without having our guilt exposed. We are all guilty. We all stand guilty before God for sins against him and for the ways in which we have sinned by dehumanizing other people. In the passage that Caleb read from James, we see that James would agree with this. You, it's not merely those who have committed murder or abortion or euthanasia or suicide. It goes beyond that. It starts with dehumanizing someone for the sake of our idolatry. James chapter 4, we'll just read a few of those verses. Verse 1, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Isn't this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Oh, brothers and sisters, our hearts are naturally inclined because of idolatry. Idolatry is treating the things that God has made as God and needing them and wanting them and worshiping them only the way that God is supposed to be honored and worshiped and needed. And so because of that idolatry in each of us, we find a way to treat other humans as less human or even unhuman, to ignore their status as image bearers of God and that's because we want things more than we want God. And in order to, to gain those things, we have to speak evil of others. We want to be seen as righteous, and we want to be able to get those things we're treating as gods. Food, money, status, pleasure, rest, career. And we know deep down that it, to be righteous, we can't treat a human without dignity. So we find a way to evaluate how human that human is. 
And that is pure wickedness. And it's at the heart of every human, all of us. And brothers and sisters, that's why we thank God for Christ's death and resurrection. Because it has provided for us the forgiveness for this wickedness. But also the freedom and cleansing from it. By the power of the gospel of Jesus and the working of the Spirit, we now can refuse to see other humans any other way than that the way the Lord Jesus Christ sees them and then repent when we do. Brothers and sisters, the glorious gift and promise of the gospel is that the Lord Jesus has died for our sins. They are wiped away. They are absorbed in him for our sins against God and against those who he made in his image. But more than that yet, he has restored us as worshipers, worshipers of the Lord God, our creator. He's freed us from slavery to idolatry, which is worshiping the gifts God created rather than worshiping the creator himself. It is only in being restored and being brought into Christ's relationship with God that we will actually then be able to be satisfied in God. Satisfying and glorifying and enjoying him and his love and his goodness so we can be freed from our idolatry in our hearts that drives us to dehumanize and devour or to justify our sins against the lives of other humans to get what we believe will satisfy our souls. We're freed from that because our souls are satisfied in Christ. And so there is forgiveness for the racist and for the abortionist, for the murderers, for those who dishonor and lie about each other. There's forgiveness for those who dishonor the elderly. There's forgiveness for the reckless in Christ. But it is only in repentance from sin and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledging that he is righteous, that his way of viewing humanity is good and that yours is not and that you will renounce yours and run to him to be forgiven for your sin and to be restored into his image to enjoy just by faith alone the relationship that Christ deserves with with the Father rather than the one that you deserve for your sins and to rejoice in being renewed and remade into that image. Christ's death provides the forgiveness and cleansing and restoration. How gracious he has been to his church. So let's worship him and honor the author of life for being our life and for bearing our death. How merciful and loving he has been to us. And so let us worship him by loving him and others as he has loved us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we confess that we are guilty, not just in our physical actions toward other humans ending their lives, but just devaluing them in the way that we think about them and fight and quarrel and deceive, Lord. We thank you that you have forgiven us for that in Christ and that Christ took our judgment and sin for that. I thank you that Christ died for us and that he rose from the dead. We thank you for that new life which is ours in Christ and that your spirit imparts to us that we are transformed bit by bit 
from one degree to another in this life. We thank you for that, and I pray that you would press that into us and that we would be committed to that. And we also thank you for the promise of a new heaven and earth. Lord, well, that will no longer be a struggle, but that we will delight in the redemption that Christ has purchased with his blood. Being fully restored, whatever was lost in the garden in the fall, fully restored for us to worship, glorify, and enjoy you forever. And I pray that you would do these things and that you would work that faith in us and repentance in Jesus' name, amen.